Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, I help you get acquainted with the authors and illustrators whose book make up our annual shortlist. On this episode, I spoke with an author whose books have appeared on many bestsellers lists and last year won the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Bob Joseph is the author of 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act and Indigenous Relations Insights, Tips, and Suggestions to Make Reconciliation a Reality. His books have appeared time and again on lists promoting anti-racism and reconciliation, and 21 Things was named one of the best books of our decade. As you'll hear in our conversation, Bob brings years of experience educating and training individuals, businesses, and organizations on taking positive steps to improving relationships between settlers and Indigenous communities, and believes very much that reconciliation is alive. Indigenous Relations is nominated for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award, and Bob starts our conversation off with a bit about what led him to write his books. Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Joseph, president of Indigenous Corporate Training. Thank you for taking the time to listen in. I'm the author of 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, as well as Indigenous Relations. Um, Both books have been in circulation now uh, for a couple of years, particularly the 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. The neat thing about 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act is it actually started as a blog post on our website. So I blog as a way to uh, meet people and help people who maybe don't want to take our training, but want to continue to learn or want to start their learning journey on working with Indigenous people. So Currently, we have over 700 blog posts. This was just one of them that we published. And right now we're looking at, um, uh, you know, uh, quite a quite a large following. We pull about 140,000 people a month to the blog looking at those 700 articles. But the really neat thing about 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act is that um, when we first published it, uh, we, we used social media to amplify, as they say in shameless marketing terms, uh, you know, the exposure for the books. And um, the uh, we, we put it on Facebook. And in the first month, we had over 55,000 people come from Facebook alone to uh, to uh, take a look at the article and then click into the website and then start looking at other articles. So quite phenomenal. It, it had uh, similar results on some of our other social media channels, although maybe not as many people, but they definitely uh, lit up. And and so uh, one of the really neat things was that we, we realized that this was a, a topic that people were interested in. It was like having big data, you know, and uh, and and we only wrote 21 things because um, it was part of, like say, the blogging effort. And I think I probably had just read an article about blogging hints, tips, and tricks. And one of the things they said is people like lists. So I thought, I'm going to write a list of something. And and I published 21 things. And like I say, it went crazy, 55,000 people on Facebook alone. And it started to really make me think that maybe people would be willing to read a version that of this that was an extended version. We could actually, you know, rather than just a paragraph on each of the 21 things, we could do a little bit of a deeper dive with references and 
And uh, and at the time that we were doing all of this, we could see that reconciliation was just on the horizon. So a little bit of time pressure there. We're trying to, you know, time the uh, the release of a book. But the, the big challenge for me, obviously, I'm a blogger, internet marketer, and I do training for a living. That's really what I do. And, and so books was a little bit out of the wheelhouse. And so we went out and found some folks that had worked in the book publishing and selling and marketing industry. And, and we said, hey, we've got this idea for a book, but we don't know if we should actually do it. It's, you know, it's based off of a, a blog article. And and uh, they they said, you know what, uh, and, and it was a company called uh, Page Two. They said, you know what, this is a great idea. You know, most of the authors, I can still remember the conversation. Most of the authors we work with have ideas for things they want to write about. What they don't have is knowledge about whether people are interested or will actually read what they want to write or talk about. And clearly, you've got something that people are interested in. And we think that if you were to publish a book, it would do the same thing in bookstores. It would take a longer time period, but it would probably go viral in bookstores and it would hang around for a long time. And they, they just said, you know, we, we think you should publish. It's a, it's a great idea. So we uh, signed on with page two and they helped us through the, the writing, editing, you know, copy editing, coming up with uh, thumbnails for the book cover, the whole bit. They really walked us through the whole process and helped us publish a book of, of an extent, expanded version of the 21 things. And we published away and it, it did what they thought it would do, just like it did online. It went viral in bookstores and it sat on the CBC booksellers list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's still popping up in there. A lot of uh, recent activity has drawn attention to it again. Chapters Indigo has thrown it out in their anti-racism collection that they're encouraging. Amazon's promoting it. So it's been a really neat thing. And I, I always tell people that, you know, uh, it's funny to be a best-selling author on a book about the Indian Act. To me, that just seems like such an interesting world to live in, you know, out of all the subjects and all of the places and all of the world. Why 21 Things? But we, we did know that the 21 Things was a way for us to talk about a little bit of the history and the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did conclude and all of the recommendations talk about Canadians perhaps should engage in conversations where they understood a little bit about the history, the culture of Indigenous peoples. And so it's forming a really big part of the conversation. And I think nationally, it'll give us a chance to, you know, have Canadians really consider doing away with the Indian Act and coming up with some other thing. And there's some other thing people always ask me is um, there's sort of three things that people are looking for. Self-determination. Nobody in Ottawa gets to tell bands or nations who their people are. Self-government. They don't, they're right now they're elected by their people, but they're accountable to Indian affairs. And so they want to change that to more of a self-governing within confederation model. And then self-reliance. They don't like the special welfare program. So that. This, this book has really given us an opportunity to not only drive our training business, but to become part of a, a national conversation on doing away with, uh, you know, 100 and 
30, 40 year old piece of legislation that really was designed to assimilate Indians into the political and economic mainstream. And of course, it failed. And I think, and people are just starting to learn about it. And that's what they find shocking and interesting. And so kind of a kind of a neat place to be talking about the Indian Act with people today. And, and so why would, why did you decide then to follow up with your second book? I think just because uh, there was so much interest and people were asking, and it was uh, a recommendation not only from page two, but we, we were fortunate enough to end up with Friesens, who did the printing, and then Raincoast, who's a big distributor of Harry Potter books, and, and they were all saying, you should follow up. Uh, I had a, I had a ch- chance to meet the boss at Raincoast. He said, Bob, what, what you've done here is incredible. We never see this with first-time authors, you know, they that they don't usually have this kind of success. And it seems like what you're talking about, people are interested, they like your tone, and and we'd recommend it too. And, and so really, uh, largely those recommendations, and I already had a lot of the work done. I'm, as I say, I've got 700 articles. I, I do spend, you know, I'm writing all the time and every week and reviewing writing. And, and so it's not not too big a stretch. And of course, it's a subject that I'm passionate about. I write about all of this stuff because I do want to change the world. I want to make it a better a better place for not just Indigenous peoples, but for Canadians. When I think about, you know, reconciliation and being involved in, in the reconciliation movement, uh, my dad is big. He, he works for an organization called Reconciliation Canada. Um, he, he also does like peace mission work. He'll work with a bunch of international you know, heads of churches and other organizations, spiritual groups, and they travel around the world into trouble spots trying to create peace. That's, that's you know, pretty, pretty mamby-pamby leftist socialist of him, but in a good way. And uh, he did, he did go off to um, the Middle, the Middle East, Palestine and Israel, and uh, they waded into that conversation, relatively unknown. Uh, when he got home, he said, you know, it was, it was interesting. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we're really talking about people that have been in conflict for a millennia, you know, going on to two millennia. And if they don't know you, they don't trust you. He said, it didn't matter where we went. They didn't know us. And so he, he said, be talking to people or meeting people. Sometimes he, he said he actually got spit on a couple of times from both sides. You know, when he came back from that, it, it to him, it said, um, you know, we need to double down on reconciliation. We need to make sure that Canadians are in behind it and supportive of it. Because if we let things go the way they are with myths and misconceptions and ideas, and that's what 21 Things does well, is it talks about where those myths come from and why there, why there are misconceptions about taxation. And he said, if we're not letting our kids or anybody else's kids go through this for over a thousand years, because they've been at it for over a thousand years. And they're, they're, how do you come back from that? How do you ever find a peaceful, coexistent world? And so he said, we're, we're doubling down on reconciliation. We need, we need this country to go after this. We need not just the governments, we need its people to, to see the value of not letting this turn into a, a Middle East type situation. We're just hundreds of years, millennia and millennia of just hatred and animosity and no understanding and, and those kinds of things. So that's a, and, you know, a big motivator for myself being indigenous and, you know, coming from a, an important family. And I, I bring my dad into the conversation because he's our, uh, 
hereditary chief. A large part of the work that I've done has been driven by values because I'll inherit his chieftainship. He's also uh, put a chieftainship on me. I have standing in our our, uh, big house, but it's like uh, the president. You're president-elect until the inauguration. Then you get to go to the White House. And so (laughs) I have standing, but I haven't done the potlatch yet, which is our gift-giving ceremony. You know, probably have hopefully, you know, six, seven hundred, maybe up to a thousand people come to the potlatch and I'll be able to give them gifts and talk about our names, songs, crests, title to territory, transfer, you know, do all kinds of uh, really cool work in the potlatch. And we talk about that as one of the things that the federal government uh, banned the potlatch and banned hereditary chiefs. They replaced it with elected chiefs. And so those are things that come out of 21 things that I could give some personal experience to you. In, and with um, your new book, you decided to, it seemed like the the focus was a little bit on, more on businesses and organizations as far as what they could do to advance reconciliation. Why mm-hmm. was that group um, of interest to you with this book? Well, they, they actually can do pretty cool things. So my life as a trainer, I started off with uh, working for a company called BC Hydro. And I didn't join Hydro to do this kind of work. I just joined to start at the bottom and climb my way to the top like everybody else. And so I spent time in human resources and advertising and display, power smart programs, and then moved into a department called Aboriginal Relations in those days. And uh And my job there was to go provide training to the employees to help them work effectively with Indigenous peoples. And what we learned really quickly was that before people would accept that they should go work effectively, they wanted to know why. We don't do this for any other cultures. We don't do this for any other people. And and so there was that whole conversation. So what we ended up doing was tying together sort of this uh, this backgrounder on history and culture and communities and how diverse they were along with the business case. Here's why we need to do these things. And at that time, and still today, Hydro's got literally thousands of kilometers of transmission lines crossing over 500 reserves belonging to over 150 bands. And so there's no way for to avoid the relationship. And so what we were saying was we, we can, you can have the relationship any way you want it. It could be acrimonious. It can be positive. We, we suggest you do positive, then your stuff's not tied up in legal wranglings like we see with the big infrastructure debates going on. If we can do this in a way that is really more positive, that they're involved in decisions that affect them, that they have opportunities. And we found that by presenting that to people, that um, when you started to give them practical ideas, they would actually go and do the practical ideas. And then we realized, you know what, it would take government two, three, four years to come up with a policy to say, this is what we want you to do as a company, if you could if you could get it to even do that. But if we had a line manager with a team and resources, we could give them ideas that they would go do, which would be great. It would make the world a better place for that one small thing with that community and that department. And and then the really neat thing was because Hydro was such an omnipresent company, if Hydro was doing it, we should do it. 
and it led to other companies. And, and eventually those other companies started to do better than us. And then we could go to our, our board and to the government and say, look, we're falling behind the corporate sector. We need to keep up. Here's some other things that we needed to do. So what we found was that if we provided people with the, the background information, didn't try to convince them of what was right or not right or fair or not fair or equal or unequal, they can do all of that stuff. And then gave them the business case and said, you need these relationships. I don't, I got no skin in the game. It's up to you. You need these relationships. We found that they would go and do it and we could fly below the radar. And we actually did really cool things at BC Hydro. We dealt with historic grievances that went back 60 years where we didn't have to negotiate, but the alternative was then you're litigating and you know what happens at the end of litigation and so that was that, that's why that book sort of has that focus is that we were starting to help people and then the really neat thing was initially it was just hydro people so i had a you know a chance and i think both books really you know a lot of the experience from both books comes out of training over 4700 hydro employees across the system and you got a chance to see what worked with people and what didn't work with people and you know, and, um, but really cool was we were at a meeting one day, there was hydro and some railway companies and a telecommunication company, because sometimes you don't have the luxury of meeting with the community just yourselves. There can be other agencies, other government and other businesses can all be there. At the end of that meeting, uh, one of the railway companies phoned us and said, hey, can we come to your office and talk to you about that meeting we were all just at? I said, sure, come on, let's let's talk and set up the boardroom, had the coffee and, you know, I call them stand up nibblies. And so we started talking and the first thing our, our visitors said to us was, okay, so we were all just at the same meeting as you and we're wondering why the hydro people weren't getting beat up as badly as everybody else. And so we said, hey, we've just helped people understand a little bit of the history and the culture. We've given them practical tips for not offending people and told them what to say and what not to say and gave them some ideas about what peoples were generally looking for. And, and that's what you would have saw in that meeting. And at the end of the meeting, they said, so would you provide that training to us? And so as a BC Hydro employee, I start off uh, consulting as a trainer to other companies. And we, and, you know, internally we had some neat conversations about it all. We were like, uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the senior manager managers and executive were saying, we should keep this for ourselves. And it's a competitive advantage. And others were saying, but we're kind of a public corporation too. We should share this with people. And that's the side of the debate that went out. And they said, look, you can, you can share this training with other people. Just don't, we're not subsidizing them though. They've got to, you know, you've got to cover our costs. And if you can make some money for us, that would be great. And so I started, you know, training other outside organizations and before I'd left, uh, not just in British Columbia, but across Canada, I've worked for utilities in the United States. I've been to Peru and Guatemala and New Caledonia and the South Pacific and helped co-facilitate an indigenous people's round table. It's been kind of a, a really neat um, niche and, and along the way, all of that experience really has pointed us to what we're really working on is relationships, very personal, very close, understand each other relationships. And, and that's, that's why we've shared and why it has that tone and flavor of 
of you know building relationships where most of the experience comes from is just that corporate experience but we we've also found you know the ontario spca the stuff we tell them in the book they take it and apply it to their situation london drugs and some very big brands have taken our training and and uh, they're finding it useful so that that sort of culminated and it was great to to get out both books at that point and share the knowledge and experience and try to you know my my challenge as a writer is how do you write it generically so they can't tell that's where I got the experience from because really that's what you want to have happen you want a a larger cross-section so that's a that's a work in progress (laughs) I think what you said there about writing generically is uh, maybe something that's so great about these two books is that you know growing up as a as a settler in Canada and going through the school system a lot of there was a lot of you know myths as you call them and misunderstandings and misinformation and I found it so valuable reading your books because it was kind of these terms that we hear in headlines in the news but there's not we don't get much information about it and you made it kind of plain language this is what we're hearing these are the differences um Mm -hmm. Why is it so important to you to kind of detangle that misinformation and misunderstanding for people? Well, I think, you know, in order to get the kind of change that's needed, we'll need the support of Canadians to be able to to make the quantum leap to what what's next, because it won't be an easy process to get rid of the Indian Act. Think of the Indian Act as a, you know, it's like you're a construction worker and you've just got a piece of rebar pounded through your arm people will say well why don't you just get rid of it well if you pulled the rebar out of the arm on the site you'd probably bleed out and die i hope that's not too graphic for (laughs) for our conversation right so what what has you know what would we do then well we would stabilize and protect and then we'd get it to a place with professionals and you know take x-rays and try to come up with the best solution for removing the rebar that would be a more practical approach and so really that knowledge and understanding is that whole assessment phase what what will work for me why would I why would I want to do this right and so I you know I think um in in sharing things like 21 things that helps to open up the door to maybe seeking more knowledge and understanding huh I didn't know that so I I assumed they all got tax breaks but uh, what I'm seeing is that it's just like this tiny little sliver of of indigenous peoples, and that's only the status Indians. And if they're lucky enough to work on reserve, then then they can maybe get a tax exemption. But you know, when you think about the only employment being a banned office, and then that's pretty limiting. And so, you know, I, I just thought every indigenous person I saw didn't pay taxes, or they see a benefit. And usually, the tax stuff really engages people, right? I think getting people to understand that, and I, and I would say people on both sides of the fence, right? There's indigenous peoples that see it as, a, oh, this is so great, we've got to protect this. And part of publishing 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act was saying, no, don't try to protect it. Get rid of it. It's actually a hindrance to you. You see that as a benefit. So what people see, you know, indigenous peoples, status Indian see, is something that's full of benefits, but it's not. It actually, it's got, it's got, benefits and restrictions and the restrictions far outweigh the benefits and they just they need to understand that too and so you know i spend a lot of time trying to convince fans there's no benefits here it was designed to assimilate and get rid of get rid of the culture and the race and you know it's about 
is about it's about as racist as you can get. When we talk about systemic racism, we 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 wrote the book. The Indian Act is literally the book on systemic racism. And if you you know if you feel like you want to get into that conversation and change it, don't wish for an Indian Act. It's not it's not what's going to be helpful. So I think sharing those with everybody just helps people say, you know what it is. If we got to do something about this, we got to make this change and move away from this this whole system. And that will take us to the three. Well, what what is the option? Self-government, self-determination, and self-reliance. I think those are the, the three big things that can come out of it. Um, so, you're actually leading perfectly into uh, my next question, which was um, in your talking about uh, self-governance, self-reliance, and self-determination, you mentioned the importance of uh, community and personal healing in those. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about um, why that's so significant. Yeah. So yeah, the healing process. So when I, when I was, you know, I've worked for more than one utility and I do a lot of, I have, a, you know, hundreds of customers and clients and uh, I've done a lot of work with engineering firms and they're very um, solutions focused people, right? Well, just tell me what they want. And if I know what they want, I'll go and I can do it. And, you know, and that, and it's understanding, you know, that, that there's a bunch of stuff that's happened on the other side that they may not be aware of that'll make their solutions kind of useless, right? And that's really what we're trying to accomplish. So I can remember going to a meeting one time and the engineers were there, no problem, we'll provide employment. And the community saying, you know, the, you know, the school just closed. They were talking about residential schools not that long ago. Um, you know, and it would be great to take advantage of those high paying jobs that you're talking about, but nobody here will meet your educational requirements. The residential schools weren't designed to make you like everybody else in society. They were designed to make you farmhands and laborers. So you're getting a lesser education in residential schools than, say, the public school system. And you were funded far less, too, which is also a systemic barrier, right? And so what they were saying was, it sounds like a good opportunity, but we're, we're one, we're not, we're not going to be at your requirements. And two, we're still trying to heal from that experience. And so when I put it into my own personal experience, um, I went to school uh, because I like to. I had friends there. And coming from an indigenous family. My mom was a homemaker and dad was basically a politician and, and uh, they never talked about school. And it, I always wondered why. And it was because they were both, they went to these uh, residential schools and they, like all of the other ones that attended, called themselves survivors because they really did survive, you know, nightmarish conditions with um, physical, emotional, psychological, all of the abuses, sexual I mean, they, they both experienced really horrific things. So they come out of those schools with no parenting skills, no, you know, their, their whole experience of education was about as negative as you can get. I don't know that you've had, seen any, anything, you know, quite as bad. So they just didn't have any focus on education. And the only time my dad ever talked about education with me was, you know, you should get a good one because you'll want to get a really good job so you can give away a lot of money at your potlatch. That's the only thing he ever, the only time he talked about education and the only reason that it would be good was it would give me the ability to give away more money at a potlatch. Uh, other than that, 
I went because I went to and I wanted to. And if I didn't want to, they wouldn't have said anything because they that, that was their experience. The other challenge that I had was that because their education was less and they didn't push it on their kids, where most families, you know what, Megan, we're going to help you. We're going to do homework. And I mean, this, that, that was the focus, you know, part of the Canadian dream, as it were. They, they, they weren't really like that. Um, and then the other thing is because they were as educated, by the time I got to uh, grade eight and grade nine, algebra, I'm thinking about the, the train leaving New York and the other one leaving Los Angeles and they're, they're traveling at different speeds. When do they meet, right? I'm thinking about that problem. And, you know, if I brought that home to my parents, nothing, crickets, they, they wouldn't, there'd be no support there. And so another sort of uh, disadvantage in terms of their education and not promoting the education like other families were probably doing with their kids and and uh, so some of the some of the little challenges along the way like say I really went because um I had friends there and it seemed like a cool place I didn't understand the value nobody nobody the only the only talk I had was good for potlatching <laughs> I thought too like it was interesting that you included the the last chapter on the kind of personal work because you know it has that business um angle if you want to call it that for for the first mm. part but I I thought that was really interesting because I think sometimes we forget that you know as employees in a in a business we make up the fabric of what that looks like and how mm. our actions can influence uh, reconciliation as well and mm. I I wondered um, you know if you could talk a little bit about what you mentioned in that chapter especially around I thought um, the cultural appropriation uh, section was so interesting, especially with the conversations we're having right now about sports teams and so on. Um, these are all kind of current, current focuses of our, of our conversation. I, I think that could be the title of my next book, statues and sports teams, you know, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. Um, so in, in terms of the, uh, the, 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 uh, cultural stuff, um, there is, um, you know, if I if I were to go to um, you know downtown Vancouver, Gastown, to one of the places that sells tourist stuff to tourists, right? And indigenous art is a very sought after commodity in that part of the world. If I could go down there and uh, walk into the, one of those stores, and I usually do just to try and see what's going on and and where the world is. And I, I hope they're changing, but I, I don't pay that much attention to them. When I, when I walk in there, I can spot the authentic stuff from the stuff that's just being copied and, you know, shipped to some place and being 3d printed. And those are some of the things that, that would be very concerning for me just in terms of where I come from. And I can't speak. Remember when we think about Canada, there's over 600 bands. There's, 11 major language families broken up into over 50 different dialects so that they may have different views than I do on this. But where I come from, the uh, image of a Thunderbird is that's our family crest. And it's like a coat of arms. It's like the, the king and queen's coat of arms. And uh, it's not something that we would want an artist to just pick up and start making because people want it and they want to make money doing it. And, and so it's, it's a challenge because sometimes those are our indigenous people. Sometimes it's other indigenous peoples who are maybe married, but really loosely connected to, to our culture. And, and when it comes to that Thunderbird crest, we will 
defend that crest, that song, that dance, like Coca-Cola defends its brand. That's ours. You can't really do it. Um, there's problems around copyright. We don't want to copyright our images and our stories. Like we've got, you know, um, I, I've always told people we've got stories that are as good or better than Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, but we won't tell them because, um, you know, the concern is if we, if we share it, the copyright only lasts for 50 years. And at that point, when the copyright expires, then Walt Disney can grab it and start making movies and, you know, with, with uh, no attribution. Like, and that, you know, how they got their start was in the old days picking up, uh, you know, those old fairy tales and those kinds of things. So those, those are the problems that, that, that we're trying to work with um, in terms of uh, what we call Aboriginal rights or Section 35 Aboriginal rights. We'd love to see some kind of uh, protection and and some acknowledgement. And, you know, there's tons of stories of people finding, you know, medicines and other kinds of things. Lots of things have been borrowed from what are often labeled primitive peoples, but they've actually made significant contributions. And so we do try to talk about that a little bit. And on the individual side of uh, reconciliation, we do want individuals um, to, to be involved in that process because governments will flip flop and, you know, they, and I'm talking about governments on both sides, you know, when they're not getting what they want, they start to, you know, we're not doing it anymore. It's dead. And, you know, um, or that's not a priority of this government. And so, you know, to leave something as important as reconciliation to governments is not going to, it's not going to survive in the long run that it'll take, uh, it really will take the individuals. And so in writing both of these books, I was really hoping that individuals, you know, would see and learn and feel, uh, feel empathy and want to take action in their own spheres of influence and back to my hydro experience we could we can get an individual or a small group of people to do great things where they're at and uh, and a lot of small people doing great things means big big change and so you know really going after uh, the individuals and that's what we've seen happening um shortly after we published uh, 21 things the new ontario government came in and it was right about the time people were starting to make commitments to reconciliation but the uh the, the government of the day it's the ford government today um you know said we're not we're not uh, not sure that's the direction we're going in which on our side we interpreted as holy cow they're not they're not they're not going to do anything on, you know, education reconciliation. So I felt bad because, you know, you're going to have all of these provinces where they're really, we're shining a light on it and educators are, you know, jumping in on the fray, but there's, there's one where they weren't putting the money towards it anymore because it had changed from one political stripe to another political stripe. And, and uh, so a little bit disappointing, but not for long, because I, a conversation emerged in on Twitter. Somebody said, hey, at WeWap, that's my uh, Twitter handle. Uh, love your book, 21 Things. We're doing a Twitter chat with teachers across the province. Uh, thanks for the book. It was it was cool, because here, here were the teachers saying, we're going to do this. We, we don't care that the government's not going to fund it, and we're going to have a conversation, and we're going to create materials, and and so that's, I think, why, you know, I, I really wanted to focus on not the political side of, 
reconciliation. But on the personal side, let's get it to people who care, who want to make a difference, who don't want two millennia of acrimonious relationships with no end in sight or no way to resolve. And, you know, reconciliation is multi-dimensional. Uh, like we've heard a, a lot of, you know, the coastal gasoline project, uh, reconciliation is dead there are placards and posters and people make politicians a lot of them on our side the indigenous people side saying reconciliation is dead but it, you know it really it's not and I, I would go on the record and say you know if somebody's declaring it dead i'm declaring it undead and uh because i think it's happening in education it's happening in business some businesses are struggling others are just acing it and and so to uh you know to to sort of make those calls is a little bit disappointing you, you know but i also realize um there's a lot of uh, good people pursuing it and if and if the educators continue and they are in in this province and in territories and other places this will be a different country in 15 years our kids are going to be so much more equipped to deal with this issue and the issue is coming out of it Thanks to Bob for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Hazel Jane Plant, whose book, Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian, is nominated for the Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.